we shouldn't be building what we think should be built. We should be building what our audience wants. Welcome to the Halftime Snacks. My name is Ronen Aimbindo. This show explores the intersection between sports, business, and technology. Are you ready? Let's go! Today's episode is a very special one. It is a pleasure to introduce and welcome to the Halftime Snacks, a former investment banker from Goldman Sachs, who's now the chief strategy and financial officer of Overtime. Overtime is one of the biggest sport media companies in the entire world, and their content has over a billion views each month. I can't wait to learn from him. So without further ado, Farzin Korashi. Hey man, good to meet you. Thank you for accepting my invitation. I'm sure me and the listeners will learn a lot about you. And, you know, I want to start off today's chat with your story, Farzee. How is the transition from working in one of the biggest financial firms in the world as an investment banker to directing the finances of a global sports media company? How would you compare both roles? For sure. I mean, working at Goldman was, um, you know, the first experience out of college. So it was um, a good place to develop a lot of the professional skills that are expected of you in a boardroom. I went to an undergraduate business school in Canada, and so you know you get to work on a lot of that stuff as well, but I think you know being in an environment like that straight out of school was certainly helpful, you know whether it's you know how to speak or communicate um the level of like rigor that you put into the work um you know making sure you're not making mistakes um those are all kind of things that helped, and I think that you know being able to adapt to you know a number of different kind of crazy environments was super helpful and that You know, now, obviously, it's, you know, our company is, you know, just over 100 people. So it's, it's much smaller. But I think it's helped in understanding how to deal with very different situations and people. I think generally, um, a lot of the skills that you get from more of like a technical financial background help in this as well. Just being able to understand um, kind of all the different inputs into the business and the levers you have to create value. And being able to just draw on experiences of like working with a lot of different clients and how they thought about their business, um, you know, I'm able to apply this job as well. And between Goldman and over time, I worked at um, Endeavor, which was, you know, um, a large global talent agency, which owns a lot of assets in the sports and entertainment space. Um, being exposed to a lot of those businesses helped as well, you know, and just having, you know, a perspective that's, I guess, a little bit more unique coming into overtime. Were you always interested about sports and the industry or was it something that uh, came about and you just jumped into it? I was always interested. I, I, I was more interested in playing sports when I was young, like most kids. Um, and then when I injured my shoulder and I wasn't able to play tennis as much anymore and I realized that I wasn't going to be an NBA player, um, you know, I tried to figure out like how I can mix my passion for sports with my interest in business. I always, you know, When I was playing games, I liked those games that had some business like aspect to it. So, you know, in Canada, we're lucky there's a lot of undergraduate business programs. So I was able to go to one where you didn't have to pick, you know, finance, marketing or anything day one. You just got exposure to a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, I didn't really have a sense for what I was going to do coming out of school. Um, and I quickly learned that finance was where there was a lot of, you know, highly motivated, smart people were spending their time. And I was intrigued by it. And thought it was like an interesting means to developing skills in a fairly like, you know, concentrated manner. And then leveraging that 
and trying to combine it with sports down the road would be interesting. Um, I went to a sports conference and I realized that like every other person there had the same idea I did and I wasn't that smart. And so um, I realized that I had to, you know, think about getting more, you know, professional services experience before going to work for like, you know, the NBA or like a company like that. And so I was lucky that at Goldman, there's a group that does kind of sports media um, advisory work. And through some connections, I was able to meet people who worked in that group. And, you know, I got super lucky in that I spent a couple of years there and got to work with the NBA and a lot of different clients and um, eventually went to another client, which was WME at the time. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was a mix of always wanting to do it, but also learning along the way that, um, you know, there's certain steps I had to take before, you know, just being fully immersed in sports on a day-to-day basis. That's fascinating. I'm sure many of the listeners will identify with your story because it's kind of a, an example of how is, is it possible to come into the industry and taking into account your wide experience, knowledge of sports and finance, combining it also with the working projects and the numbers you're exposed to consistently, I'm really intrigued to ask you how valuable and how risky compared to regular asset classes such as stocks, bonds, real estate, is it to invest in sports and sports organizations? Uh, I think, so one, sports investments aren't really uh, accessible to you know, the everyday investor. Um, I think if you are someone who has you know, the ability to go invest in you know, a sports company, whether, you know, if they're raising money or if it's, you know, you're so rich that you can, you know, invest in a team or, I mean, there's some stocks that are publicly traded as well in the sports space. I think that, you know, it's just a different risk profile, right? You need to understand that, you know, the, the upside may be higher there, but the risk might be higher. And, and you know, conversely, certain bonds, the, you know, the same thing with bonds, right? If you're, if you're going to go and invest in AAA versus junk bonds, like there's a, there's a risk return profile there. And, the same thing with sports assets. I think sports is a little bit different in that it's not so much about value as it is price. If you think of, you know, sports teams getting sold, like, you know, the, the revenue or EBITDA multiple or whatever it was sold is like, it's an indication of value, but it's also an indication of price. There's scarcity value in that there's only 30 NBA teams, right? And so, and how often is the team going to go on sale? And so when it does, you know, there's this, you know, supply demand dynamic which drives the price up even though the value may not be there and i think you know you need to understand like where we're at in that cycle um, and where that cycle is going to figure out if you know that's an investment that makes sense i'll keep that in mind and that's really interesting how uh, you mentioned it farzim and i, I want to switch over uh, now to talk a little bit about overtime what is the business model of overtime and how well is it working what are the chances you'll need to execute like a business model pivot within the next three years. Uh, what's, what's your take about it? Sure. Um, so our model is primarily advertising based. If you think of, you know, if you're familiar with Barstool Sports, for example, right, they are a company that has a large audience and, you know, there are large brands like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and things like that who want to reach their audience. And so they'll spend money with them to go and reach that audience. And then also because so many people are hardcore barstool fans, they'll go and buy their apparel and their merchandise. Our business is very similar in many ways. Um, you know, we're the largest sports media company on kind of digital. Um, we just passed the NBA on TikTok, for example. And so we reach a lot of young people and it's a very elusive audience. So brands like Nike and Gatorade and a lot of these companies want to be able to reach this young audience and they can't do it on live television because 
these sports fans are not watching live television anymore. So this is kind of where they go and spend that money. Um, you know, we've put on live events before, so it's another form of advertising in a way. Um, but similar, you know, to Barcelona in many respects, like we have a very engaged, loyal brand. Um, and so, you know, when I walk around the streets of New York City with an overtime shirt, kids will do the O with their hands and be really excited. And they want to be able to wear that themselves and represent the brand themselves. Um, and I think that's what differentiates us from a lot of other digital media companies. Like no one walks around with a BuzzFeed shirt or like a Vice Media shirt or anything like that. And I think that's the power of our community. And so our business model is like primarily advertising based, whether it's direct brand deals, whether it's like programmatic revenue, whether it's live events, and then, you know, general apparel and being able to create merchandise um, from, you know, our core IP. Um, in terms of pivot, you know, I think that, you know, because of this audience that we have and the distribution power that we have and the brand, you know, we're going to expand into, um, you know, extensions of our business that, um, you know, a company like ours would think about doing, whether it's like owning leagues, whether it's having our own subscription product, whether it's having our own app. We just released an app in the app store, which, um, you know, is basically serving the Gen Z young millennial sports fan because there's nothing else in the market for that. Um, and so really leveraging our core competencies to go and expand our business into things that really are products that, you know, our audience will want to consume. Wow, I, I find that super intriguing and that's really worth looking into. And I'm curious to know, uh, Farzine, when a company is so big with such a massive following like yours, you mentioned that you're bigger than the NBA now on TikTok and you have 4 million followers on Instagram and, you know, you have so many, like such a massive following. What's the thought process of you and your teams to consistently deliver value to the consumers to keep growing? I mean, what are the most critical metrics you take into consideration for the financial strategy and the growth of the company? I think the three that I would pick, I mean, there's a lot. I think the three that I would pick, though, one would be engagement rate. Um, it's, you know, you can post a lot of content, but if people aren't engaging with your content, you know, it's only so valuable, right? So being able to show that, you know, as a percentage, compared to other people, how much are people liking, commenting, sharing? That's how you create community. You don't create community by passively watching videos, right? You create community by people wanting to interact with their content, share with their friends, comment, tag, things like that. So I think engagement rate is the, like always the number one thing that we've looked at and we still look at it today. And the fact that even after, you know, when we were small, people were like, oh, it's easy to have high engagement. But then now we're like bigger than everyone and we still have the highest engagement rate. And I think that goes to show our understanding of our audience and our ability to create engaging content. The second one would be watch time. Everyone uses the billion views per month thing. I think watch time is a better representation of how much people are consuming your content. Someone could watch our YouTube video or a Snapchat video, but are they watching for one minute or are they watching for 10 minutes? So our, you know, our watch time and the percentage of that watch time that comes from long form content is certainly something we take, you know, a close look at on a continual basis. And the last one I'd say is it's more of a financial metric. It's the percentage of our inventory that we're selling to advertisers. Um, and that's, you know, meaningful in terms of how quickly are we able to convince brands that this is inventory that's worthwhile of their ad spend. And so, you know, an increasing sell through rate and our ability to, um, sell a higher proportion of the content that we're creating to sponsors and things of, like that, of that nature um, are critical as we think about how you manage growth in a high growth stage company.
Wow, that's uh, that's fantastic, Farzim. I appreciate that answer. And you know, since we're running out of time, I'd love to ask you a more personal question, uh, Farzim. What is your Thelian secret? Meaning, what is one key belief held by you or by Overtime that is not widely shared by the industry, and what has made you believe in it? Uh, I'd say it's actually like two things. One is, um, you know, for a long time people said, you know, you don't have an app and you're not valuable, right? And I think that, you know, we have an app now, but it's not because we need it, right? It's because it's an interesting extension of our business, but we're always going to be where our audience is. And our audience is spending time on TikTok. They're spending time on Snapchat. And so our ability to build our brand on the backs of these social platforms, I think was really huge. And people think, oh, now that we have an app, we're going to push all of our users there. And that's not the case. Like there may be some users that go there, but social media platforms will always be a key component of our distribution strategy because that's where people are spending a lot of their time. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people have disagreed with us in the past and still don't quite understand. That's how, you know, young people are consuming sports content. Um, the second of which would be like, you know, really understanding what your audience wants and building that for them and not you know, assuming what they want. And I think, you know, we, we do a really good job of surveying our audience, talking to parents of the athletes we work with. Like we don't launch a business line or a product without really understanding what the pain points are and creating value for that consumer. You know, one of the things you said was like, how do you, you know, go and every single day, go create value for your consumer. It's not really a guessing game. Like we understand what is bothering them, where the gaps are in their day-to-day -day consumption habits and how can we serve that purpose as a brand that they love and other parts of their life. Yeah, I feel like the way you described it is lies perfectly into the definition of audience first products, which basically value what the audience actually wants, not based on what uh, sells the most. No, it's based on what brings value to the audience and to the actual consumer. And I, I love how you said that for you, it's really important how much they, how much time they spend on the video. And I love that. That's a that's super smart way of measuring uh, your success. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you know if we if we built this company for what I or CEO or whatever wanted to consume, like we would have built something similar to ESPN or like one of our competitors that no one, like none of these young people love. Right. And I think the whole point is that we, we shouldn't be building what we think should be built. We should be building what our audience wants. And, you know, we think we're the best people to build that for them. And so, you know, that's why we go into the, the, the analytics and we'll see like, Oh, like minute four, like for some reason people stop watching, like why? Like I could be like, well, I love that, but it doesn't matter what I want is what our consumer kind of consumption habit is and like really understanding that over time and how can you cater it to improve it and make sure that whatever you're delivering to them, whether it's, you know, a t-shirt, whether it's content, whatever it is, is exactly what they would expect and want because, you know, that's not what other people are doing. Totally, Farzine. Uh, I think that's a great place to wrap today's conversation. I'm grateful for having the chance to speak to such an icon of the industry. I'd like to thank you for your time, for your insights, and for your kindness. I hope we'll get the chance to interact in person sometime soon. But for now, thank you for coming to the Half Tech Snacks. I appreciate it. Thank you, man. Before you leave, I want to thank you for listening. 
To hear this or any other halftime snack, check out the full archive on my website, which you can find on the show notes. See you next week!